many circles, Angela Duckworth's name has become synonymous with the word grit, that elusive state or trait or, as you will hear her describe it, tendency that fuels the sustained action taking in the face of relentless adversity over an extended period of time that leads to extraordinary achievement and outcomes. Her book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, was a long-running number one New York Times bestseller, and expanding her fascination with human flourishing beyond the topic of grit, and also deepening into her love of children, Duckworth founded and is the CEO of Character Lab, a nonprofit that uses psychological sciences to help children thrive. She's also the Christopher H. Brown Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, faculty co-director of the Penn Wharton Behavioral Change for Good Initiative, and faculty co-director of Wharton People Analytics. A 2013 MacArthur Fellow, Angela has advised the White House, the World Bank, NBA, NFL teams, and Fortune 500 CEOs, and her TED Talk is among the most viewed of all times. And she is now the co-host of the podcast, No Stupid Questions, with Stephen Dubner of Freakonomics. Fueling all of this is a relentless curiosity about people, why they do what they do, and how to help them do it better, bundled with a deep desire to make a real difference in people's lives. We explore all of this in today's conversation. So excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I want to dive in with you because you are in the context of all of this. There's so much incredible work that you have done, so much work that you're doing, and um, and eventually I want to get to the podcast that you've been uh, rocking out this year as well. You've built this stunning career as a researcher and an educator, a lot of it focused around grit and then expanding out into broader character traits. But it sounds like sort of education has been a part of your ethos from the earliest days. It was sort of like something that was drummed into and part of the culture of your family as well. Yeah, I think education, you know, it's like a fish in water. You're you're not even consciously aware of how important education is because like everyone you know thinks education is so important and then you 
And then you realize like, oh, you know, there is, there's something like unusual about this emphasis when you, you know, leave your family and you, you know, you go experience other, other influences. But I would say that my, my devotion to education now is maybe less from my family saying like, it's important, you know, education is, is the, is the way to do anything in life. I think, I think I really like kids. So when I was in high school, I, you know, I tutored a little bit and when I was in college, I really, like I spent, I think I maybe spent more time with kids in the neighborhood as a tutor, as a big sister, as organizing program than I, than I did in the classroom. So I think I'm just, you know, kids are great. I'm smarter than us and they're nicer than us and they're more energetic. Yeah. I mean, um, have you ever thought to yourself, like, what is it about the quality of being a child that so draws you to them? You know, they really are kinetic, right? If you're around kids, like it's just, it's palpable, right? Like they just, maybe their mitochondria are better, but they're just kind of bouncing off the walls with energy. And I don't just mean three-year-olds, right? I mean like 15-year-olds, like 18-year-olds, like they're just, they've got a lot of chi. They've got like, it's like life force. And I, I find that to be like literally revitalizing, right? Vita meaning life, right? Like it, it, you feel energized. And, and I do think there is like a, like a purity, like they're just, I mean, I really do think they're like smarter and nicer than, than we are in so many ways, right? Like there's a real kind of authenticity, especially young kids, of course, right? Who they're just like, look at you. And like, you know, there's, there's not a lot of like layering of, strategy, et cetera. So, so I don't know, I've, I've really enjoyed them from, from that perspective. Also, when I was a freshman in college, you know, like most 18 year olds just are figuring out what to do. So you're doing a lot of experimenting. And I remember I volunteered both as a tutor and also as a, like a, somebody who would go visit people in the locals uh, nursing home. It was like a publicly funded nursing home. And I got assigned two patients and I would go every week and just like sit with them because they were people who didn't have a living family or at least living family who would visit them. And I remember having these like two experiences, like tutoring like nine-year-olds and then visiting, you know, 85-year-olds and in the same neighborhood. And I think these are both like valuable things to do. But I guess the other reason I'm drawn to education, you know, in addition to maybe my family culture, in addition to like liking kids, because they're awesome, is that if you really want to make the world a better place, there just seems to be a kind of logic of like, well, this kid needs, you know, more than what they're getting. Maybe since they are at the beginning of their lives, like this is a good time to, to, to invest. And so just in some sense, I hadn't intuition that, you know, this would be a very, like, like, you know, if you want to make the world a better place, like, how could you not like help start with kids? No, I love that. I mean, I mean, it's, it's curious. I love the idea of bouncing between sort of like the nine-year-old and then, you know, dramatically fast forward to the, you know, the person who is like close to 90 and this, you know, there are probably some really fascinating similarities between those two age groups, you know, a level of openness and curiosity, a level of, I feel like it's sort of like there's a, there's this window where we start to center our lives and our thoughts and our expression. And it's almost like when you catch people before that, it, it, it's a different insight into the human condition. And then when you, when you step into people's lives in their late eighties, they're probably at a point where I don't want to make assumptions, but I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people will be at the point where you're kind of like, you know, I got nothing to hide. It just is what it is. I'm going to be here with you, <laughs> you know? So yeah, there are more parallels of and there yeah. I mean, you know, I, I can see that the two women that I was visiting were not especially open to experience. I was, I was trying to convince them of, of things. I, I didn't do a very good job. But later in my life, I think it was in my... 30s or maybe my maybe it was my 30s I was talking to my friend Adam Grant who's also a psychologist I'm sure you know Adam many I, I dare say most people I interact with like know him or know of him so I called him and I said we're both tenured now as professors and we're very blessed I'm trying to make a rank ordered list of like the problems in the world that I should work on you know in order of importance like have you done that like what do you think and he said you know I thought about that but at the end of the day, I realized that it's very difficult to rank order like climate change compared to funding reform in education or elections. Or it's, it's very difficult to make that list. And I'm not sure that's the right list anyway, because 
these problems are all like so above threshold. Maybe you should make the list based on like what you get energy from and what you're good at. And I think there are some social problems which you could argue are more urgent than others, but there are so many that really are above threshold. I thought that was great advice. And I don't think that what I work on is necessarily more important than what other people work on, but I think it's above threshold to say like, hey, maybe psychological science can do something to helping all kids thrive. And for me as, a, as, a, as an individual, for whatever reason, even more than food, I find human nature to be endlessly fascinating. I mean, it's it's funny because I I have noticed, so I, I do a lot of research whenever I, I sit down before I have a conversation and I have a quick note. I wrote down relentless curiosity and the way that shows up when you're being interviewed is you take over the interview very often. I know, well, it's like asking questions. <laughs> right, I, but I it was like, amazing like, And then what say. happened? Why did you do that? Right, and, I, and I'm like, I'll be listening and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, she's asking all the questions. <laughs> You're so, so, yeah, I usually like apologize to the interviewer afterwards. I'm like, sorry, I just had to like, I just had to know. I wanted to know what you were thinking. Yeah. But I think it's, I think it's actually beautiful, right? Because it shows that somehow you have found a way to channel so much of your energy into something that other people are curious about, but also even when the context is supposed to be them asking of you, you are so curious just about the current interaction that you're in, about the human being that you're in conversation with, that it's almost like you can't help yourself. You have this childlike curiosity about what's going on in the mind and the life experience of the person that you are momentarily in conversation with. I, I do feel like one of the great joys in life is to ha to feel like the way you were when you were a kid and you were curious about something. You just like wanted to know. And it was in a way like a need or a yearning, which sounds negative, but but like it's it's great, right? Like you're just quote unquote dying to know, right? I, I do often feel like that. I've never met somebody that didn't interest me. And when I think about what I read about, like like you said, you're like, oh, you notice I'm interested in food. True, right? And I do read a lot about food, but I'm not reading actually like the books about like molecular gastronomy and like what really happens when you braise something. I'm actually reading like memoirs about food, you know, like I'm reading MFK Fisher and I'm I'm like reading, you know, stories of like the people, who, you know, why do people do that? Like, like so, so the, the human dimension of anything that is happening is is invariably what interests me when uh, my husband and I bought a house recently we moved um, five blocks uh, in Philadelphia and the realtor would just you know find it hysterical that when he would take me to a new home instead of uh, like thinking about the molding or the electrical system I was always asking these questions like oh and then why did they want to move out of this and then so they have three children. So how old are they? And like, what, you know, why do you think that they decided to go into that profession? And the realtor's like, I don't know, but I don't know that it's relevant to buying a house, but it is exactly where my mind goes. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like this childlike state of wonder um, where it's just a, a fierce curiosity about everything and everyone. Do you think everyone's like that though? Like just to you know, do my thing of asking <laughs> questions like, but do, do you like, do, like, are there people do you, do you, you know, in your experience and like, do you think there are people who are less curious, who aren't asking? In some ways I feel like, isn't everybody doing this all the time? Yeah, I, I actually don't think so. And here's why I say that. So we, I've actually been doing sort of my own research for a couple of years. We developed a set of archetypes and an assessment that looks at sort of the primary drivers of work, of effort across the spectrum people. And so one of those archetypes, we, we call them sparkotypes, categorized as the maven, which is basically a either a broad-based or a deep dive fascination, a love of learning, um, you know, probably line up with that and uh, like the via strengths. And we've got about half a million people who've been through the assessment at this point. So we have some serious data and mavens or people who are driven by curiosity or fascination are absolutely the most prevalent of the archetypes. They're most willing to invest effort in pursuing that curiosity or fascination. They show up it's anywhere between 25 and 30% of the population or the people who are taking the assessment. But there are also other people and other drivers that seem to be much less interested in learning and much more interested in doing particular things. And it's almost like having to stop that to learn something or to go deep into a curiosity or fascination is more of an annoyance. It takes them away from this other thing. And 
I, my, here, my lens is that we are, you know, if we're a hammer, the world is a nail. <laughs> yeah. And that those who are the, are the mavens cannot conceive of anyone else approaching the world similarly to them, just like any other orientation or wiring or impulse. Yeah, that, you take it for granted. You're like, isn't everybody right. this kind of hammer? Like, aren't, aren't all the things I see this kind of nail? You know, my dad used to say they're thinkers, doers, and charmers. And he wanted to make the distinction, first of all, between thinking and doing, which you just emphasized. And then he said, you know, the people who really get things done are thinkers and doers. And the people who really get things done are thinkers, doers, and charmers. Anyway, that was my dad's taxonomy of the universe. And I, I, I do think that I am sometimes like a very curious person. I'm also very doing oriented. I took the Myers-Briggs personality indicator, like MBTI, I guess, Myers-Briggs type indicator, yeah. which is a whole other conversation because most research psychologists don't put a lot of stock in it. But uh, I do remember taking it and getting like a zero for thinking and the maximum score for feeling and the the test proctor coming over and saying like, oh, I think I think you self-scored this wrong. And then it was retabulated. They're like, no, nope, you got a zero for thinking. I was actually a McKinsey <laughs> consultant at the time, which was a little worrisome to my colleagues. But yeah, I, I think there's a part of me which is very curious, especially about human nature. I'm not curious about everything. I actually don't know that... I don't know that anybody is curious about everything except for young children. Um, I'm not curious about politics. Like I'm not curious about like lots of important issues. I'm deeply curious about human nature and I am a doer. Like there is a, like if, if I'm on vacation by like day three, I'm just like dying to do something that feels like a progression to me. Well, I mean, uh, I, I, my curiosity, I guess is, is, um, what is the impulse underneath the doing, you know, doing to achieve what or doing it, which kind of like loops us to a certain extent to, uh, you know, like one of this, the topics that you have studied for a lot of time now, which is this thing, you know, capital G grit, where we're really talking about when, when you zoom the ones out and you look at people who have achieved stunning things across a number of different domains and very often in the face of great adversity over an extended period of time. And you embrace this question, like, what is it? What is, what is the thing? that distinguishes them from other people and and you identify this thing which you which you call grit can you deconstruct that for me a little bit yeah i define grit as this combination of long-term passion and long-term perseverance with the emphasis on long-term by the way so i'm just going to say what i think about these things i think by the way these are words and you know nobody owns any of the words in the um, english or any other language so i i'm not saying that other people who use these words are wrong or you know they and i'm not saying that this is the best way but to, to clarify when i say long term i mean in adulthood really over years or decades to to really have a abiding sense of doing something that's really important to you that you love that you are not bored of you know after like a year or two or three or four or five or six and then perseverance is you know the more obvious part of grit i think like working incredibly hard even when nothing is wrong and then being resilient when things are wrong so it's really about time on task like high quality high quantity engagement to me is probably the final common path to any human achievement. And grit is this tendency, by the way, I think you can change your grit. So it's not necessarily a fixed tendency, but a tendency to stick with things and to keep pursuing them, you know, not, not a different thing every, every few years and, and just work really hard at it. So, so when I watched the last dance, which I, I feel like I was the last person to watch the last dance and I just finished the, that series and I'm just, you know, like everybody else, I was glued to the screen. How could you not be? But when you look at like a, a Michael Jordan or a Lindsey Vaughn, you know, like it's, it's incredible how much high quality, consistent, high quantity energy uh, they devoted to their craft, you know, not over a year, not over two, it's really over decades. And, and I think that is why these people are uh, so great. We could have a discussion about talent too, but I, I think that's, that's what grit is and, and that's why I study it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. You use the word tendency, which I'm curious about. As I've learned about grid over the years, looked at your work, looked at, at some of the other commentary around it, and just looked at the, the broader field of positive psych and social science. I have been curious how grit really gets described. In my mind, I keep flipping between, is this a state? Is it a trait? You use the word tendency. And I guess part of the curiosity for me is that if you view it as a trait, which I've heard it spoken about numerous times, then underlying that is the assumption that it's not changeable. If you use it as a state or a tendency, well, then maybe it opens the door to this being a trainable thing, something which is malleable over time. So I'm I'm curious where, where you fall on there. So if I could try to communicate something that is both true and very nuanced, then I will do a victory dance after this conversation because I, I think it's very hard to understand, but I'm going to try. And and it's it's the idea that any trait is a distribution of states. So it's not that grit is a trait or a state. It's that when I say a tendency, I mean that if you take a really gritty person, it, what it means is that very often, uh, if you like dropped into the middle of their life and said, you know, like, gee, I wonder what they're doing. Like very often they would be in the state of like passionate pursuit of something that they're working very hard. If you take a very low grit person, more often that you drop into their life and you're like, what are they doing right now? Like, are they doing something with passion and perseverance that they've been working on for years? It's like, that would, that would happen less often, but any human being has a distribution. So if you say like, oh, Michael Jordan was really gritty, you know, he's at the extreme. You'd be like, you could drop in on almost any moment in his life. Right. And you could make a good bet that he was like thinking about basketball and working to improve and, you know, exhibiting all his, 
it could be, however, though, that like, you know, you drop in and, and there's a, a day, uh, an hour, a moment where he's doing like something totally random. And, but I think the idea that traits, you know, character strengths are tendencies and people have distributions, by the way, this is hard to explain to a general audience without knowing a little bit about statistics, because what I mean by distribution is like, if you could imagine in your mind's eye, like a little graph, right? Like you would see the distribution means like, where are you on average? Where are you sometimes? Where are you, you, you know, rarely like anyway, the, the idea is that I think grit is a trait in the sense that people differ on their distributions, but anybody differs within themselves, right? So, so people have the capacity, even if they're a really high grit person to occasionally be low grit. And I think that is why just to, you know, since I'm already in this like quagmire of complexity, which is, I think actually what human nature really is like very complex, like human nature cannot be communicated in a Ted talk. I think, I think that is why you, like your context matters so much, right? So you could be a really gritty person and your coach is just toxic or your company is toxic and you're really a passionate, persevering person, but you have no opportunities to, to like learn or to develop like that, that will also influence, you know, whether you are in the state of grit. So, so that is, you know, the fuller picture of grit, which I have struggled to communicate because it's hard, right? Like, I think it's just hard to understand that things like traits and states aren't opposites or like it's either a trait or, but that all human care. And actually I'll say this, any serious personality psychologist will just say like, oh, of course, all tendencies, all the strengths in the via, you know, what it would mean to be a quote unquote grateful person or like, you know, curiosity is a signature strength. What it really means is that if somebody sampled your life, that your distribution would be all kind of like bunched up, you know, toward the high curiosity end of the spectrum and that the states of low curiosity be rare, but not non-existent. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating to me. You know, if, if you think of it as a sampling of, of many moments over a long window of time and then looking at, you know, the, the, the distribution, then uh, it also makes me curious about, well, who's doing the sampling and how are they actually viewing the context of what allows somebody to express these things versus what doesn't? You know, if you look at one person in life who has simply by the nature of their circumstances, a lot of opportunity to do this thing, to express it in an unencumbered way with a lot of resources versus somebody else who comes out of a very different place and maybe remains in those circumstances for, for decades or for life and would love to express these identical things, but because of constraints and circumstances just doesn't have the opportunity. I'm curious how, how you take that into account when you're sampling those moments and figuring out how these two people are different in their expression. So let's uh, make a distinction between what theoretically is probably true and like how you would ever actually do it. Yeah. I think it's really important to do that because when I say that like, oh, people are these distributions and imagine this like thought experiment that you could like parachute into their life and then see what they're doing. And then you could like, like that's not actually what happens, right? right? Because um, it's very hard to do. So in theory though, I just will stand by and I, I you could like literally ask any trained PhD psychologist. What about, and, and by the way, the psychologist who's really pioneer here, who like put a name to it and all is Will Fleeson, and he calls it the density distribution model of personality. Anyway, all very hard to communicate, but, but it's not controversial. It's like every, I think every serious psychologist would be like, oh yeah, of course. So it's complex, but it's not like new, or it's certainly not my new idea. Okay. So then you're like, well, who would do the sampling? Like, I think that, you know, these are all good questions, but I think more relevant is like the part of what you were saying about when you observe somebody doing something or not doing something, you know, you could say like, oh, they're high in this character strength. They're low in this character strength. There's a distribution of states in part because your circumstances matter enormously, right? I spent this um, terrible summer, my parents owned this tiny little like needlepoint canvas company that you know, my mom 
would get these like canvases shipped in from Taiwan and they all had the made in Taiwan sticker on them, which was some, you know, requirement for customs. And then my job for the whole summer was to take the stickers, these little gold oval stickers that said made in Taiwan, and take them off. Right. Which I hope was legal, but anyway, that's what I was asked to do. And, you know, I'm a pretty hardworking person. I feel like I'm actually a pretty energetic person. It was like torture. I mean, the first hour of the day I was going crazy already and so exhausted. And, and, and I think that's an example of like how your situation is going to change like your behavior, not because you're like a low curiosity person or you're a low energy person or you're an irritable person. You're now at that end of the spectrum in your distribution. You're on the low end of curiosity for you because you're in a situation that doesn't give you the affordance to like be at your best. And, and I think the recent conversations in this country about equity and about racism and uh, and and more are are in a in a in a very important way like shining a light on like how uneven and how disparate people's opportunities really are. I think that's intersecting with positive psychology and and the kinds of things that I work on because you don't want to make what the psychologists that I you know know would call the fundamental attribution error, which is to observe a behavior and attribute it entirely to the person's tendencies and not take into account context, situation, um, you know, opportunity, obstacles that are outside of the individual. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and I do feel like the conversation that's happening in this country now touches into that in a lot of different ways. Beyond the, um, the sort of general attribution error, I'm also curious about how sort of the notion of survivor bias affects when you're, you're looking at who is gritty. You know, if you take somebody who achieves this incredible thing, you know, through perseverance and passion and credible resilience over a long period of time through adversity, and they reach this, you know, capital S success, you know, we often, we might be inclined to them, call them, you know, like a gritty person, but you take somebody who did the exact same thing and then they either fail or become destroyed along the way. And in hindsight, you know, we popular culture will then often look at that person and not call them gritty or successful, but rather arrogant or delusional. So I wonder how this idea of sort of survivor bias plays into the conversation, if at all. Yeah, the um, idea of survivor bias, or it's something that's called sampling on the dependent variable, it, it, it's basically the idea if, like, if you look at the at the winner circle and you're like, hey, these people have all these, you know, things in common, but you're not looking at everyone, and it could be that those same characteristics that are true of the people who are, you know, at, at the top of their careers could be at the same of people who are at the bottom or in the middle or whatever else. You you have a a fallacy there if you do that. So in my research, I I both interview people who are, you know, like Olympic gold medalists, but most of my published research, actually all of my published research is based on longitudinal samples where you're not just looking at the people who finished, right? So at West Point, for example, if you only interview the people who finished and you're like, hey, they're really gritty, then you could be sampling on the dependent variable. You could be committing this error. But if you start out with all the cadets and they all take the grit scale, and you know, of course it's a select sample, but you're you're still starting with everyone. And then of the people who you know, you're studying, you can look at variation on their outcomes. So that's the solution to this error. And, and, you know, that is why I think it's important to do studies that are not just like, Hey, I just interviewed these three Olympic athletes. And like, I'm going to just like draw all these inferences. Uh, so, so that's the sort of methodological solution. And that makes sense to me. You know, it's interesting. The example of the cadets at West Point, I think is really interesting also sort of like when you're taking a group of people who all start together and they're all tasked with essentially working towards the same outcome. And there's a, a, a predefined endpoint and a predefined metric for success. And part of my broader curiosity around grit also is how it shows up and how it applies when you are out in the world doing things where there is no predefined endpoint, where it's more of an agile process, where you need to sort of define success along the way and even decide whether you can succeed or if, and if it's worth the cost sort of in real time as you're doing it, you know, like does grid apply when learning along the way 
is a part of the metric for success. I think you're right just to, first of all, contrast, you know, a really structured environment. You know, sports are like that too, right? Like, I mean, what if you are on the very long path to becoming, you hope, an Olympic gold medalist, right? Like, it's very hard. But it's it's structured in a, in a way that most of us don't have that. You know, most of us are like more like fill in the blank than multiple choice, right? In terms of the choices that we're making, and that's harder in in some ways. I feel like so. Why would somebody pursue something for years? Is that the goal must be at a level of abstraction that it's not like something you accomplish like in a day or a week or a year, like you. You know, when you ask people, and and not everyone has a, an explicit top level goal that they could say like, oh, this is my mission statement for my life. And I, I think, I don't know, maybe one out of 10 people that I've talked to, like has it in a very conscious way, even people who are really gritty, because sometimes it can be like non-conscious or like, you know, an outsider might say like, I would think your goal is this, but they might not be, you know, have, having it in their head like that. I, I think whether it's conscious and available to you or or less so it it is having something which you are basically working toward and and i think that the idea that it's this higher level goal in a hierarchy of goals explains to me why there has to be a lot of flexibility and experimentation it's cliche almost when you when you really get what people's top level goals are because they're so abstract, you know, like, you know, be my best, you know, make, like make the world a better place, like, you know, bring out the best in others. Um, I have a graduate student, Danny um, Southwick. He's a former NFL quarterback who's now getting his PhD. He, he did the master's in positive psychology program, uh, which is how I met him. And his top level goal professionally is show what's possible, right? Okay, that is incredibly inspiring and poetic, but it's so abstract, right? It's in the particulars, right, where there's so much experimentation and like, is that going to be through being a, a coach? Is that going to be through like becoming a research psychologist? You know, how how can I do that? So, so I think when you are living your life like most of us are living, you're you're really, I think, struggling to kind of like figure out like which path. I, I still think having some articulation, however, of that North Star top level abstract goal is helpful, right? Even if like the path toward that is, you know, something you're constantly experimenting with. And it's been helpful to me. You know, I think my top level goal, use psychological science to help kids thrive, isn't even as abstract as as it, you know, is for other people. But but just knowing that, like, you know, should I go on this podcast? Should, like is, you know, what, what should I do on Friday afternoon? To me, it helps me decide and it helps me realize like, no, not that, that, not that podcast, like, but maybe this one or like, no, shouldn't, shouldn't do that on Friday afternoon. I should do this on Friday afternoon because, because ultimately it's more aligned with what I care about most deeply. Yeah. I guess that helps orient around, you know, like, and that last thing that you said, I think is really what it comes down to what I care about most deeply. You know, even if you if you if you don't have some predefined sense of this is exactly where I'm headed, this is exactly what you know it it looks like, or this is exactly what I'm looking to create or learn or discover or achieve. To have a strong sense of this is the thing that fuels me, that wakes me up in the morning, and and am I making progress towards that? You know, that's why I, I'm I I think I use the word agile. Um, you know, in the world of of entrepreneurship and startups for a long time, lean was a sort of like a hot word and. And I thought it was fascinating because they essentially reframed the idea of a startup as, you know, like a startup is effectively a group of people in search of a business model, hmm. you know, and, and the goal was not to quote succeed, you know, like the goal was to learn, you know, like it was, it was to iterate as rapidly as you can to prototype, to get feedback. And the fundamental goal was just to learn and learn and learn and learn. And as long as you were learning, then you could say I'm succeeding, even if at the end of the day, the learning taught you this was a terrible mm -hmm. idea and we absolutely shouldn't do it. I think it's interesting because when you orient around that, then I feel like grit becomes almost more accessible no matter what the outcome is, no matter whether, you know, burn through the the seed money that was given you and realize it was a terrible idea to start with. There's a, a great paper um, out of Stanford Business School. I just love it. It's 
It's about uh, success being metaphorically a journey and not a destination. And of course, you know, uh, that's a metaphor that's been around for a while, but they actually did these random assignment experiments where they showed people photographs of, you know, a road and a uh, like, like a farmhouse or something in the distance. And, you know, in one condition, you're encouraged to think of success as the road, right? As the journey, as the path. And then in another condition, like success is there. It's like getting there. It's like that house in the distance. That's your goal. They found was, you know, that relatively, you know, simple, brief induction and, and, and metaphorical framing actually encouraged people in actual real life uh, goal-directed things like exercises to 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 stick with things longer and to you know mm. put more energy into it. And in general, I think it's a healthier thing. Actually, I was just talking to Lindsay Vaughn yesterday. She's great, and I I think she has many character strengths, in, including obviously grit. And she you know talked about how uh, as early she can remember, really like she would want to one up herself. Right. I mean, really, that is the idea that like you're never there. Right. And she would say that, too, like even when she retired, she, you know, she could name the number of things that she wanted to do that she hadn't done. So I think it is like a good way to think like, you know, what am I learning? Right. Like, did I learn something? And by the way, I have tried to use this during the pandemic because this is just the most stressful year of my life, of most people's lives that I know. Um, and I'm especially blessed. So I'm, I'm can only imagine uh, what other people are going through, but I am trying to wake up in the morning. In addition to doing my three good things, exercise and thinking of three blessings in my life, I am trying to think of at least one thing I learned. And when all these imperfections, right? Like, oh, this happened and that was not what I wanted. And like, then I tried to do that and that did not work out the way I want. Like, and then I made this mistake and, you know, I made that poor judgment. I think if I keep coming back to a question of like, what did I learn? Then it frames it, you know, as, as you said, like in the right way, does it, does it matter that you burn through your startup? Like, yeah, it matters. But, but what, what you really want to think about is like, what did I learn? And I mean, in, in that context of day-to-day -day life, in the context of startups, whatever it may be, I feel like that just taking that frame, you live a better life because no matter what happens, <laughs> you know, as long as you pause to kind of say, like reflect on it, it's kind of like, you can't, it, you can't, you can't lose. lose. Yeah. Right. It may suck in the moment. Right. It may be a brutal experience. It may be hard, but you know, if you frame it as, as you know, like, do I now know something that will inform how I move forward in, in a, you know, in a different way? There's so much um, uncertainty right now. Isn't it great that you could basically guarantee that you win if you say like, did I learn something today? And yeah, you're right. And by the way, truly world-class performers learn from their successes too, right? So it's very hard to learn from failure. Actually, new research from terrific psychologists shows that it's especially hard to learn from failure. So we should praise the Lindsey Vons and the Michael Jordans from learning from failure, but also they learn from success. And that's that's hard too, right? Because so so often it's like, oh, I, I you know that worked out. Like I, so anyway, having a learning mindset at all times is, I think, a you know a wonderful thing in in so many ways. Yeah, and and I think that also speaks to a certain extent to um the role of a coach or a mentor or a guide or somebody who steps in. You know, we um had Anders Ericsson in the studio a little while back. I think a lot of people know his original research, which has been misinterpreted, <laughs> and uh, you know. It, it, around the 10,000 hour rule, which is not a 10,000 hour rule, but the idea of this, you know, like deliberate practices, grueling practices, it, but what was fascinating to me is sort of like his current focus seems a lot more to be on the role of that person who steps in. And when you're in this fierce process of growth and learning and struggling, the importance of having somebody else um, alongside you who can zoom the lens out a little bit and look at what's happening, have the wisdom and the experience to understand how to help you move through a moment that you perceive as unmoved throughable, for lack of a better way of putting it. And, you know, so when you talk about Lindsey Vaughn or, or pro professional athletes or people at the top of their game who are able to do this, I wonder how often you know, his lens was, this is a mission critical piece. It's almost impossible to push to this place long-term and survive this process if you don't find or have that person or multiple people. I wonder if if you have seen or, or um, think the same thing. 
Yeah. And Andres passed away this summer and um, it's an appropriate time, I think, to, um, you know, honor this life. I mean, Andres really was the world expert on world experts. And when you talk about, you know, a mentor or a guide, you know, uh, he wasn't my coach the way like Lindsay Vaughn had a skiing coach, but he was actually a mentor for me. And so I was able to belatedly, I guess, you know, I wrote a gratitude letter, which I read at his memorial service. And I was able to say in that letter, you know, I am quite sure I would not be where I am today without you, which is exactly as you, as you say, you know, what, what Anders uh, surmised after studying experts for his whole life, that people rarely, if ever, truly go it alone. There are lots of reasons why that is. One that you mentioned is the motivational one, right? I mean, I don't know many people who are the ones to like, you know, realize like how to put things in perspective and to give themselves the pep talk, you know, like the, the day they really need it. I think for most of us, we can think like, oh yeah, that's what my husband does or my wife does or my peer does or my my mentor, my coach, my boss. The other reason though Anders would um, want us to to talk about is that when you think about the practice that world-class experts do, it's goal-directed, it's very strategic. It's not like, oh, gee, I wonder what I should do with this like two hours. Like it's highly choreographed and it's well thought out. And I think in Anders' experience, it is extremely rare that the person that is the performer can do all that mapping out. Like you need a Phil Jackson to say like, what we're going to work on is this. I mean, you, you need a trainer who says like, all right, today we really have to work on that. And um, I, I think that's really a profound point. I would call Anders um, occasionally. Um, I, I met him when I was still in graduate school. I think it was like toward the you know end of graduate school for me. And I would call him for advice, you know, especially when I was feeling lost, which was somewhat frequent. And um, and he really did. Like he he gave me like I didn't, I couldn't just like write in my journal and come up with the advice that he would give me. And he would tell me to like, look for a salient role model and to, you know, to try to like copy what they did. And he would ask me to like define what success looked like and to like think about the obstacles. Anyway, he, he, he said a lot of things that I think enabled me to, uh, to, to become better at what I did. And I think that's his, you know, that it's true. It's exactly what he was working on, um, you know, when he passed away. Yeah, I, I just found it so compelling, um, and especially that last point you were making, where it's she, part of it is about the motivation, but the the role of having somebody who, for lack of a better word, is is in possession of a different set of mental models and experiences, and and the ability to reflect to you what you don't see, and offer a frame that is just not within your experience. It, it, I remember that when he shared that, I was just like, yeah, I never really thought about it that way. But that to me is, I think, a much a much harder thing and maybe more important than the sort of like, quote, you know, like pumping you upside of things. You know, um, the term I, uh, my my colleague Ethan Cross might use is um, psychological distance, right? And and it's it's so true. I mean, my husband and I have gotten into a pandemic routine of on most nights and and we really try like to take a little walk, right? Like a, a walk after dinner with our masks on just to like process our days, which have usually been filled with small to medium sized stressors. And just, you know, for, for him to be able to tell me like the things that went wrong, I mean, I have distance, right? So it's, it's, it's really helpful to have another human being who cares about you, but they didn't go through the same bad day, right? So they have a little perspective he was a really, truly, as you know, I think like kind and funny and fun person. I, I feel like, uh, I feel like not everyone also would know that, right? They're like, oh, the 10,000 hour rule, which as you, as you point out, is like usually misinterpreted. And then, you know, his like monumental work as my own advisor, Marty Seligman would say that not many scientists can say they really discovered something important, but Anders could say that. And for all those reasons, like he should be memorialized. His, his obituary appeared in every major newspaper. That's all correct and, and right. And everybody should buy his book peak and everybody should read it. And like, you could literally become better at what you do in, in a more efficient way. If you understand Anders work, but he was such a good person. His wife said at his service, 
that in her very long marriage, she could not remember a single occasion when he was unkind to anyone. So anyway, I, I think it's a it's a wonderful thing to be mentioning him in this conversation. No, I love that. And and um I didn't know that you were so close to him and he had played such a um a meaningful role in pretty sure he got me tenure. <laughs> I wrote that in my <laughs> gratitude letter. I was like pretty sure you were, you know, a big reason why um anyone would wanna, you know, believe in my work. Yeah, that's amazing. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And it's interesting also because it kind of like, you know, as we zoom the lens out from grid and, you know, like you're, you have not just been solely focused on this one thing called grid, it, you know, it's been a piece of your work, but also as part of the character lab, you know, it's, it's really looking at the other elements of the human experience of what makes us the way that we are of, you know, beyond achievement. Um, how do we treat others? You know, it's sort of a deeper exploration of the life of the mind and what goes on in there and all the different things that contribute to the way we bring ourselves to the world and, and, and to a certain extent, the way the world returns certain things to us. Do you like the word character? Um, I do. I, I, but there's probably a weird reason for it. Yeah. What's your um, reason? I think it's hokey and I think it's, it harkens to a time to me. It's, it's kind of an old timey word Yeah. that speaks to a moment where the quality of a human's heart, of their intellect, of their service, their contribution, was at the center of life. Mm. And I and I sometimes wonder whether that is not so much the case these days. Yeah. And I and and I like the word because I think I I don't think I mourn the loss of it because I don't necessarily believe it's gone, but I yearn for more of its return. <laughs> it's beautifully said. Yeah, I've been thinking about the word lately. Well, not just lately, but also lately. I think Aristotle used the word character in translation. Martin Luther King said intelligence and character, you know, these are the true goals of education. Maria Montessori, John Dewey, like there are many great thinkers who have embraced this term. One of my favorite thinkers is Jackie Bezos, who among other things is the mother of Jeff Bezos. And she says, character is how you show up in the world. And I, I think these are the, the reasons I do like the word character, but I think sometimes people think like it sounds 
like accusatory and it, it, you know, it sounds like you're blaming the victim, like, oh, they have poor character. Like, that's why they're not doing. So, you know, like any word, I guess it has its pros and cons. Um, but I did create this nonprofit called Character Lab with two educators, Dave Levin and Dominic Randolph, and they really liked the word character. They had been very attracted to the work of Marty Seligman, who was my advisor in graduate school, as I said. Anyway, I do think that some emphasis on, you know, how you're showing up in the world and also like, as you say, like how the world returns that and to emphasize that like how the world treats you is part of where your character is shaped. I mean, so again, because this conversation has taken us to complexity and to nuance, I, I, I think that's very important. It's not like your character is just something you're born with. I mean, you know, where do kind people come from? I think kind people come from people being kind to you. And, you know, where do unkind people come from? Like, probably people being unkind to them. So, so I think it's, uh, it's a nuanced thing. But I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm proud to have a nonprofit called Character Lab. And I like it. I like the association with the word. I, I can see how it may be loaded for some people, but I also, for me, when it, the, the way that I, the frame that I have for it is positive and it's sort of like drenched in meaning and and love and contribution and purpose and things like that. It's interesting that your, your reflection, though, I, I was recently having a conversation with a friend about the experience of shame. Hmm. And she said, well, you know, there's a shame that society like that's that's sort of like from the outside in you know when you're not living up to blah 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 and then there's just like the inner shame you know like that and i'm like nobody's born with shame <laughs> you know like there there is no inner shame until it comes from the outside in mm, that's very interesting um, yeah and, and did they really sort of mean like, like some inner shame that like is just you know springs out of your arteries and veins or something like that was my curiosity yeah. you know like I, I i feel like sometimes we live with a certain frame or experience for so long that we almost can't imagine it not emanating from within us. Yeah, interesting. It just feels like yeah. it's like coming out of your pores or something. You know, it's a moral emotion that emerges during the preschool years, uh, shame, guilt. And, and I'm sure there could be arguments about why you know, you wouldn't want someone to not be capable of this moral emotion, like, you know, but there's so many reasons to like think that it can be a very toxic emotion. I spent a lot of time in my twenties feeling like, I mean, I even would say out loud and I certainly would write in my journal, like I'm a bad person, like for whatever reason, like, you know, I'd fallen short from some expectation or hadn't, I don't know, something ridiculous. Like I didn't eat healthy that day. And like, Oh, I'm a bad person. And I think shame like can be so debilitating. And I'm glad that like I, grew up a little bit and now I'm 50 and like, I, I don't have that kind of like self-incrimination uh, that I, that I had when I was a younger woman, not nearly as much anyway. I think age, well, maybe not for everybody, but I feel like sometimes age helps. I mean, I, <laughs> there, there are plenty of times where I'm, yeah, I'm 54 and, and where I have messed up or I've done the wrong thing or said the wrong thing and I've caused harm. I've, I've gotten into this habit of just uh, when I'm starting to feel that thing inside of me, asking like at the time that I made this choice or did this thing or said this thing, did I feel it was right action? And do I still? Mm. And if the answer is no, and sometimes it's not, then I'm like, okay, I need to fix this. This was messed up. Mm. Um, but if the answer was yes, then it just, it allows it to settle differently with mm. me. So the question um, you ask is what again, like it, it was, was it right? Action? Was it right and action? It, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's sort of like a, a bit of a Buddhist frame. Yeah. But it, it works for me for some reason. And, and it also sometimes helps me understand when I need to right or wrong. Yeah, no, I think you like to ask questions, obviously, in so many ways. I was thinking, like, if I had a New Year's resolution, if you can have a New Year's resolution in, like, September, well, it's the new school year anyway, I'm about to start teaching two classes. And I was like, you know what I need to work on this year? And Anders Ericsson would very much endorse this because you should have a specific goal for improvement, not just kind of try to improve everything. I'm going to really try to ask more questions, like more authentic, open-ended questions that don't have a, you know, yes or no, right or wrong answer. And I, I so I love that you ask questions as a matter of being, and I, I'm going to try to do that more, like in everything. Brian Grazer, who's a person I really admire, very curious person, also of you know, accomplished film producer, et cetera. I had a conversation with him recently 
he has this idea of a curiosity conversation and that's how we met. But then, you know, of course became friends and he was saying how like in his leadership as, as every Hollywood producer also has to be a leader, like he's learned um, instead of telling people, you know, what to do and what not to do is to ask questions, uh, you know, that are much more generative and don't make people, anyway, I just think it's great. I'm like, yeah, questions, questions are great. Questions are a superpower. Like I am not asking enough, like real questions. No, I love that frame. And it's also a really nice segue into your podcast. <laughs> oh yeah. I didn't even think that that's true. We, uh, we have a podcast, we meaning Stephen Dubner and I have a podcast called no stupid questions. Yeah, I mean, with everything else that's going on, your life is not unbusy. I, um, I literally where, didn't where know that this podcast number? was weekly. Like he was like, I was like, so when is this season over? And, and <laughs> I, he, I was, I was, I was like, you know, like, is it ten episodes? And he was like, I'm not sure I know what you mean. I was like, well, I mean, you know. And then like we take a break, and then like you know, in the next year, and he was like, oh, and did you not read any of the emails? Like this is a weekly podcast, and I was like, got it, check. Um, so it's been a little more frequent than I had originally like thought that's my, my fault. And I really like Steven talk about like nice people. Like actually I, Steven has a bias. Like I, I now know him pretty well. And like, he really likes like good, nice people. And so, and he's a good, nice person. So we, we get along because he's so great. You gotta love that. And, and it's sort of like the perfect to have two good, nice people who are sitting there, um, hosting conversations around like called you know the podcast is called no stupid questions really basically inviting everybody to say come on just like like what do you got you know let's go there but some of the topics you explore i i I'm, i think all the topics are actually like super cool um you you went into something which i think for a lot of people is super relevant now which is why it is so hard to be alone with your thoughts was one of them and I would imagine a lot of people are going through that and questioning that these days. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic is a, a time when some people, I mean, I think about my mother-in-law and my mom, like they are like really alone, right? I mean, they're, they're sequestered and with very few exceptions, they're, you know, they have 168 hours in their week, just like we all do, but like almost all of those hours are alone. And uh, I was talking to Stephen Dubner about this question. I think he, it's hard for me to remember which questions he asks me and which I ask him. The structure of this podcast is that it's one of each. So there are two quick conversations that uh, college students who send us emails are like, this is what I miss about college. Like, this is the kind of, you know, it's like fun conversation that I used to have when I was in attendance. And that question, I think he asked me, but I can't be sure. It immediately made me think of research by Tim Wilson and colleagues on how people are so uh, averse to being alone with their thoughts that he, even for many of them rather shock themselves electrically at great pain um, rather than do nothing than, than sit there with their thoughts. It also reminded me, by the way, of the marshmallow task, uh, which is this famous task that preschool children are waiting in a room. It's empty. There's nothing in the room to do or look at. And they are delaying gratification, hoping to like get two marshmallows instead of one if they can wait until the experimenter comes back. And I remember watching the video of this original task and then also replicating this experiment myself with slightly older children. And it struck me that, you know, maybe even harder than waiting and resisting a marshmallow is not doing anything. Um, and I do think that's part of the reason why the task works is that it's very, very difficult to sit alone. Now, some people would like nothing more than to be alone with their thoughts. And I think it's something we can all learn, which is, you know, mindfulness. I mean, if, if mindfulness becomes part and parcel of what people learn to do when they grow up and practice when they are at any age, like, I think that would be a, I, I, I can only imagine how wonderful the world is going to be. But mindfulness, I think, is non-judgmental awareness of the present. And I'm guessing that if you had like Richie Davison in a room, you know, by himself for not only minutes, but hours, like he would be very content. He'd be, He'd be like, cool. <laughs> like, here I am. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's a really hard experience for so many people. And I, I have about a 10-year-ish meditation slash mindfulness practice. So I've gotten a lot more comfortable with it, but um, sometimes really enjoy it. 
but it's been a long process. <laughs> is it hard for um, you? Is it, it's not really, is it, how, how do you describe the experience of, you know, when you're practicing mindfulness now? You know, um, well, to me, I, I sort of split into two things. One is a sitting practice and one is just an ethos. So, and, but I think the sitting practice builds the capacity for the ethos that you just carry throughout your day. So I can much more readily just snap into a conversation, a moment, an, an interaction, you know, a, a tiny green bug crawling up my hand um, much more easily because I've had this mm -hmm. daily practice for so long mm -hmm. now. So that, so I don't experience the daily practice as fun or necessarily any easier than it was 10 years ago when I started. Mm -hmm. But I notice the flow through mm -hmm. to just moments of my waking orientation that where I'll, I'll stop for a moment, I'll be like, oh, I'm, I'm more present or I'm less reactive. Like mm -hmm. I just, I know five years ago, I would have experienced this in a much more reactive mm -hmm. way and it would have led to a, a worse outcome for everybody. So, so it's almost, it, it's that, which is actually the much more meaningful thing to me. Mm. That, that makes sense. I'm learning. I don't have a daily mindfulness practice unless you count yoga, which I think, I think Richie was like, you can count that's a moving meditation <laughs> anyway. But I think he would really love to have heard you say that because when he communicates to me what it really means to me, he's like, it's not necessarily, it's, it really is just being able to, you know, throughout your day, adjust and, and like be in that state, which is, I guess, why, why you do that daily. Pra I mean, it's not that different from exercise, right? It's like, you want to be vital throughout the day. That is why it helps to do half an hour, yeah, of, I mean you know, calisthenics or something. Yeah. Right. My ultimate goal is not to be able to sit for longer and longer amounts of time. I <laughs> could care less about that. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, what I care about is how it, how it changes the quality of my life just moving through each day, which feels like a good place to, for us to kind of come full circle as well. So sitting here in this container of the Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To me, to live a good life is to do three things. One is to exercise strengths of heart which is just about you and other people. So you could say, oh, I'm going to do that through gratitude, or you could be like my mom and do it through generosity or kindness. You could do it through however you want, but it's a way of interacting with other people in a positive way. Then there's exercising strengths of mind, like you asking questions and being curious, um, or maybe being a deep learner, or um, you might say like, my strength of mind is intellectual humility. I, I think there are many ways that you could enter uh, that, but strengths of mind. And then there's what I study, strengths of will, grit and self-control, optimism, I would say growth mindset. And I think those are all the kind of like getting things done. So, so when my dad said, you know, life has thinkers, doers, and charmers, you know, they roughly correspond to these categories, not exactly in that order. But I do think if you imagine a person's life who they're in some way, um, like working on trying to interact with other people in a giving positive way, in some way, they're trying to like exercise the life of the mind. We could put mindfulness in there if you wanted. And in some way they're trying to get things done for a higher purpose uh, and, and being effective. Like, I don't know, it's hard to imagine that you would go too wrong. I love that. Thank you. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Com, or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.